0: Let's uh, begin reading in Genesis chapter three and verse 15. I'm just here. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is the Lord speaking. This is (coughs) Jehovah, God the Father, And he is speaking about a promise, a promise of a coming deliverer, a coming savior. It shall bruise thy head. The the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise or his heel will be bruised as a result Uh, that's the cross. That's Calvary. This seed of the woman is a prophecy about the Messiah, the coming Savior. The Jews studied this and they looked for the coming Savior. They taught about this great truth. This is called the first gospel. This was about 4,000 BC when this was given and the Jews studied this. They looked for the Messiah Last week, we studied about the captivity and Daniel being in captivity and studying the scriptures and about the synagogues and how they studied the Old Testament in the synagogues, the Jewish churches in Babylon, where today it's modern day Iraq. And then as a result of the study of the word of God in the East, then what we find in the gospels, Luke chapter two, Matthew two, what we find is we find the story of the fulfillment of this promise right here, And we find that there are wise men that come from the east. Where did they come from and how did they know about this promise? I said last week, it's likely that they came from the east Babylon, right where Daniel was. And they were aware of this promise. These Gentile men, they were aware of this promise because of the Bible study that was happening there in the synagogues. So how did they know about the promise? They knew about it from the Jewish synagogues and the study of scripture. This promise right here, this is what we've been studying. And we're tracing throughout the history of the Bible and the people of Israel, how God is fulfilling this promise and how he ultimately fulfilled it with Jesus on the cross. Look also with me at Acts chapter 26, verse 22. Acts 26 and verse 22. A couple of verses to uh, begin our message this morning. Acts chapter 26 and verse 22. So it's all the way in the New Testament. The Old Testament is Genesis to Malachi. The New Testament begins with Matthew and goes all the way to Revelation. You want to go through the first four Gospels of the New Testament, go to the book of Acts chapter 26, and we'll read verse 22. Begin. uh, Well, let's begin. I'll tell you. Let's begin with verse 18. Paul preaching to the Gentiles. And in preaching to the Gentiles, he said, This is my purpose in preaching to them. Notice there in verse 18 to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that is, the world dwells in darkness under the power of Satan, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That is, these Gentiles, these people of the nations of the world can be brought out of the darkness brought out from underneath the power of Satan to be brought into the kingdom of light, God's kingdom, and under the uh, lordship and reign of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision that I received, but first showed unto them of Damascus and so on. And then he says in verse 21, for these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. The Jews were trying to hinder the progress of the gospel and of the gospel ministry and Paul's work. They were fighting against him. In verse 22, having therefore obtained help of God, I continued unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets, notice that, the prophets and Moses did say, and what does it say? Should come, should come. So that means that the Old Testament prophesied about everything that would happen with Jesus. And it began with Genesis 3.15. Not only did it tell us that there was coming a Messiah or a Redeemer, but it also told us that God would turn to the Gentiles to give light unto the Gentiles. That's me and you. That's anybody in this world that's not a Jew. To give light to the Gentiles so that we might be saved. So what you have going throughout the whole Bible really is a scarlet thread. It's a a great drama of redemption. It's the story of how God would bring the Savior into the world. We've been tracing that, and we've been going uh, from Adam in that first promise, Genesis 15, 315. And we looked at Noah, a very special family that's about 2300 BC, roughly, just rounding those numbers, to Abraham, how God did that through Abraham, not through Ishmael, but through his son Isaac. And then his grandson, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes became the nation of Israel. Jesus would come from the nation of Israel. That was the purpose of Abraham. That's the purpose of Israel. They would produce the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. Then we saw uh, Moses, roughly 1500 B.C., David, about 1000 BC, how God carried this promise through. There are promises given to David. Jesus will be and is, will be the son of David. He will rule on the throne. And then we're up here this morning about 400 BC. We're going to talk about the 400 silent years between 400 BC and zero. That is, that during this time, God did not speak to his people. There were, there were The the Bible ends the Old Testament with Malachi, and after that, God goes silent and does not give any more inspired scripture to his people. So you have 400 years until John the Baptist shows up and Jesus shows up, and he's born at zero. uh, Zero marks Christ's birth, not his death. It marks his birth. And what you have, I drew this eyeball here, because Paul said that the scripture could foresee these things. He talked about the scripture like it was a person, because the Bible is living words. What you have is you have God from before time began, before he created the world. God is able to look down through the corridors of time. God is able to see the end of this timeline from the beginning. And when you read the book of Revelation, which there's many things that happen after the cross, when you read the book of Revelation, it's written from a perspective, like somebody is at the end of the thing and looking all the way to the beginning. It's, it's, God is able to see the end from the beginning. Now man can't write a book like that. And all of these prophecies that were prophesied of Jesus, these predictions in the Old Testament, that being the first one, many others given, some given to Abraham, some given uh, to Moses, some given to David, These prophecies, these predictions about this coming Messiah were all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is unique. There's no one else like him. He stands alone in the history of mankind. No other person has ever been foretold, prophesied, promised in sacred writings, and then revealed in history. He stands alone. Allah and his prophets, they they can't do that. There's no other book like this. Prophecies, uh, more than a thousand years in some cases, before Jesus shows up and fulfilled to the detail with amazing accuracy. And the whole thing, it wasn't all written down at once, it was written down over a period of time and then later on fulfilled. You know, it's just amazing. You have Abraham and Job living in the so-called Bronze Age of the evolutionists. And uh, they're agreeing with the, the sophisticated writings of Paul. Now, if, if people back in the Bronze Age were big dummies, and if we're, if we're evolving and man becomes more intelligent over time, you wouldn't have that happening. That's because evolution is a hoax. The only book in this world that does not change is this Bible. The science books, the history books at school, they've been changing since the days my dad was in school. They're different than they were when I was in school. This book does not change. There's no other book in the world that can do what I just said Amen. but this book. Now, why is it when kids are taught about religion in public schools and they talk about the top religions? Why is it that Bible believing Christianity is not in one of those top religions? Why is that? Why is it that they learn about Islam? And they learn about the Quran, and they learn about uh, their, their uh, prayers. Why aren't they learning about this? There's no other book like it. I'll tell you why, because this world hates our God and hates this book. It shouldn't surprise us, Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you too. Yeah. Amen. And uh, God, is, God has done this so that he could bring a savior into the world so that he could save us from For our sins. sins. I, I, so I still have this written down up here. I like this. I wanted to show you guys this. I found it on a card. Jesus. Just when everything seemed hopeless, Noah, Abraham, the whole world uh, had, had rejected the knowledge of the one true God that they had from Adam and had gone into worshiping many gods and, and sacrificing children and so on. Just when everything seemed hopeless, God unveiled his plan and sent his son to save us. That's what we're studying on Sunday mornings, how God unveiled his plan and his plan was to send Jesus to be a savior. You know, there are people in our country who are still responding to the soul saving message of Jesus Christ. Amen. And if you need to be saved this morning, you can be saved. You can be reconciled to God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, personal faith that he can forgive you of your sins Give you eternal life and reconcile you to the Father. Take down the barrier between you and God, the barrier of sin that separates you. The Bible says that our sin separates us from God. He came to save us from our sins, not just the penalty of our sins so that we don't go to hell. There's more than that. He came to save us from uh, living a life in sin and the power of sin. Now we will not be fully delivered from the power of sin until we're finally glorified and in heaven with Jesus Christ. But he came so that we might know the son. And if the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And Jesus comes to save us from our sins and he offers salvation to all. So if you're not saved today, today's a good day to get saved. Amen. I heard about a teenage boy, Memphis, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, just recently. Teenage boy, he's living in a home with his dad and his mom and his older brother that's 29 and they're a Muslim family. This teenage boy has received a gospel witness from someone and he decided to bow the knee and bow his heart to King Jesus and ask Jesus to be his savior and became a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, brought out from underneath the power of darkness and of of the devil. And he became a Christian, but you know what? It's cost him something to be a a Christian. His mom and his dad began to punch him and kick him and beat him in the home. His 29-year-old brother joined in. They all beat him and, and demanded that he renounce Jesus and become a Muslim again. His mom took a knife and scraped on his hand with a knife and threatened him with it. And he goes to school and people at school and friends uh, see what's happened to him, see the bruises and all of that. And they sent the authorities to his home and praise God, they arrested his dad, arrested his mom and his brother, but I don't know where he is now, probably in foster care, most likely. But it costs that young man something to be saved, but praise God, he's brought out from underneath the power of Satan, brought out of the darkness. And that's what Jesus came to do. And Jesus says, "Yea, and all that shall live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He said, if they hate you, you remember that they hated me first. You see, things are heating up in this country. And we're not to hide our head in the sand. We're not to hide ourselves in our homes behind closed doors. But we are to be out there telling people about this amazing truth that we have trusted someone who is prophesied, foretold in the Holy Scriptures, and then fulfilled in time, in human history, fulfilled those prophecies. There's no other person like that in the world. There's no other book like that in the world. And we're supposed to be out there pointing people to Jesus Christ, pointing them to the only hope, the only joy, the only peace on this earth to be found this Christmas is in Jesus, the son of God. He is Lord. He is Lord. This is his church. He's Lord of this church. Not me, not you. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of your life. He owns you. He owns the days that you have left. You're his servant. Your time belongs to him. Your money belongs to him. Everything that you have in your bank account, everything you have in your wallet, it's his. It belongs to him. Your opportunities, your children, they belong to him. The, time, the opportunities that you have to be a witness, those are all under his care and his direction. And he's trying to use us to be witnesses unto him Amen. and use everything that we have. When, when we give money to missionaries, we'll be hearing from a missionary tonight. And I wish more people cared about our missions program and would show it by coming, by showing up, to support our missions program. We do that on Sunday nights, once a month. And we're gonna hear from a missionary. We're not gonna take him on for support necessarily unless the Lord leads that way, but he's coming in to present his burden. He's a church planter in the Philippines. He's, he's planting churches in areas around there, and some of them, like Manila, are very dangerous places where there are a high concentration of Muslims. But guess what? They have a chance to win Muslims for Christ. Some of those Filipino missionaries are going into mountainous regions of the Philippines where it's very dangerous to be a Christian and Christians have to meet in secret and you can't just be open like we are and enjoy everything that we have. They, they don't have that privilege. And uh, some of them are going up and reaching those people in mountainous regions. And we have a chance to help in that and to take some of the money that God has entrusted to us and give it to them. And we pray about who to support. Why do we do this? Why do we do it? It's because it's God's heart. 4,000 years, uh, 6,000 from our perspective, 6,000 years ago, God prophesied in Genesis 3.15 that he would send forth the seed into the world yeah. to deliver us. And our little part is to reach our own mission field and to give so we can send missionaries to go to the uttermost parts of the world. A very small amount. But we're so wealthy in America and I don't know why more people don't want to be involved with that. It's God's heart. It's God's desire. And listen, if you and I, if we don't have the joy of the Lord this Christmas, we have no strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And if we go about rejoicing, like Paul said, rejoice always, and I know what you're thinking, and I know what I'm thinking. When Paul says that, rejoice always, and you say, but you don't know what I've gone through this year. I'm just not able to do that right now. You don't know how I'm feeling right now. And we start to argue in our mind when Paul says, here's a command, rejoice in the Lord, and we argue in our mind. So he says it twice. He goes ahead and says it again. He says, and again I say, rejoice. It's a positive command with positive results. If you rejoice in the Lord, you'll be strong in the Lord and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding will keep your hearts and your minds and you will be a wonderful witness. We're not gonna be a good witness if we go around all down in the mouth all the time and uh, gloom and doom. No one's gonna want any of that. (laughs) No one's gonna wanna have a conversation with us that we might be able to turn into a gospel conversation. We need to rejoice. So if you lost your joy this Christmas, I pray I pray that we'll have the joy of the Lord and pray and say, God, give me the joy of the Lord back. And you know, a great prayer for our church. We pray a lot of times for people going through illness and I'm, and I'm glad that we do. And I'm glad when people pray for me when I'm going through an illness and we, and they, those people need our prayers. But you know what we could pray for as a church and what we should pray for? Lord, I pray that our church would be a joy-filled church again. Lord, I pray that we would have the joy of the Lord. Just, just, Exalting Christ and, and just glorying in what we have as Christians Amen. and glorying and, and excited about the next time that we're going to see somebody get saved. Somebody join the church. You know, next Sunday, we're going to have a vote at the conclusion of the service to receive in the membership, Brother Keith White. The Lord's worked in his heart in that way. I'm rejoicing in the Lord about that. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. You know what? Pray, Lord, I pray that our preacher will have the joy of the Lord. That's a good prayer too. So you can pray for that this Christmas season. Now, as we're looking at this, I think here's some information today that's just gonna get you even more excited about how God fulfilled that ancient prophecy, that ancient promise in the book of Genesis. We're gonna look this morning at the 400 silent years between the end of the Old Testament with Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament when John the Baptist showed up. It's this little period of time right here before the cross. In the silent years, the Jews were threatened with extinction at this period. And had the devil succeeded in wiping out the Jewish people, we would never have had a savior. The seed of the woman would never have been born. It begins during that period of time with a man named Alexander the Great. Would you look at Galatians chapter three, verse eight, real quick. Galatians chapter three and verse eight. So you have four little letters that Paul wrote, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right there in the middle of the New Testament. We'll look at Galatians chapter three and verse eight. This is the apostle Paul writing. And this is a verse that I would quoted a moment ago, but I want us to see it again. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. If you found it, say amen. 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 It's okay to say amen in church. It's okay to say praise the Lord. Amen. You can say hallelujah. That'd be good too. That's <laughs> biblical. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 verse 8. And the scripture for seeing that God would justify the heathen. I'm one of them heathen, that God justified. The scripture for seeing, that means like, he's talking about the scripture like it's a person. So he personifies it, the scripture is living. These words are living words. It It can judge the thoughts and intents of your heart when you're reading it. The scripture for seeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. That's referring to Genesis chapter 12. The scripture preached to Abraham. And so what we've seen is how God has done that all the way up through time. But what else did scripture foresee? It foresaw the silent years when God went silent. It foresaw what the Jews would go through. After they came back from Babylonian captivity, after they rebuilt the temples, the Zerubbabel's temple, the second one, and uh, what would be ahead for the Jews, God knew all about this. Alexander the Great is mentioned in the Bible, not by name, but he's mentioned. This, uh, he's a king of Macedon uh, during this uh, 400 year period. He was a Greek uh, king, went about spreading the Greek language and culture throughout the known world. He conquered most of the known world, almost did it, but he died young somewhere around in India. And after he died, four generals were ready for a power grab to take the power that he had uh, gained there through his conquest. And these four generals took over. They divided the kingdom up. One of those generals was named Seleucid, Seleucid. And he became a ruler in Assyria. That's north of Israel. That's north of of, uh, the, the land of the Bible. And he became a king and and he called himself Antiochus and the rulers after him were all called Antiochus, Antiochus. The fourth one of those, so one of his great-grandsons, the fourth one of those named himself Antiochus Epiphanes. The word Epiphanes means an appearance of God. This man, Antiochus Epiphanes, was so full of himself that he thought he was God. And he, he he had... coins stamped in his image. He had uh, statues of himself in stone and in metal erected of himself, and he wanted to be worshipped. And under his rule, this pagan heathen of a ruler, the Jews started to revolt against him because he was in control of, of, of their area. They were under his dominion and the Jews revolted. And so Antiochus came down to deal with the Jewish revolt. And when he did, he went about doing horrible things, things that shouldn't be mentioned in a mixed congregation. But since we're not in a mixed congregation, I could mention them. They took the babies of, of Jewish women. After Antiochus conquered that, that land uh, and, and came down there to deal with their revolt and put down the revolt, he made being a Jew illegal. And so when women's, Uh, gave birth to children. And and if they had a male child on the eighth day, if they circumcised the child, they would go about to inspect the children. And if the soldiers found a Jewish child that had been circumcised, they would hang it up by one leg and they would take their sword and they would cut it down the middle and wrap it around the head of that mother. They were wicked, evil people. God saw all of that. God saw what was going on. And uh, just to show them a real lesson, And to destroy them as a people, he knew he had to destroy their people. So he went into the temple, this Antiochus Epiphanes, and he desecrated the temple. He sacrificed a swine on the altar. He erected in the center of the temple a statue of Zeus. That's the Greek god of of all gods. He's He's the greatest of the gods. He's like the daddy of all the gods. And he erected this statue of Zeus. And what he was saying to the Jewish people is this. He was saying that my God, Zeus, is higher than your God, Jehovah, which is blasphemy. And he's saying, you're under my control. And he tried to uh, eliminate their religion. And the the Jews, this was war to them. So they went to war with with, uh, this Antiochus. And that's where we uh, learn about Judas Maccabees. He was a great leader. Uh, these were just country uh, men, men who uh, were not real skilled in, uh, in warfare, but they, were, they lived in the countryside and they took up arms against this superior army uh, and they fought guerrilla style and they actually were successful in completely defeating Antiochus and driving them out of their land under this great leader that is still celebrated today, Judas Maccabees. Do you know what Jewish holiday is used to celebrate this victory? It's called Hanukkah. They celebrate it right around Christmas time. And they do that because something miraculously happened. For one thing, God gave them the victory. That was miraculous. And another thing, after they drove them out, they cleansed the temple. And after cleansing the temple with the Jewish priesthood and the, and the uh, olive oil and so on, they lit the menorah again because the menorah candle had been put out. That's the light that's in the temple that shines on the showbread and, and the altar of incense. That had gone out representing that you know, God was not there anymore. Uh, and what they did was they lit that again, but they only had enough olive oil that had to be made specially by priests to light it for one day. So they thought, we'll just light it for one day. And this will be a symbol that the light is back on in God's house and God's presence is here. And he gave us the victory. They did it as an act of worship. And uh, instead of lasting one day, miraculously, it lasted eight days, it should not have. It was supernatural, it was a miracle. I believe that that happened. That's not folklore, I believe God did that. Our miracle working God made that menorah last for eight days not seven days, amen, not nine days, but eight days. That's God's perfect number of completion. So today the Jews uh, celebrate Hanukkah, which is the Feast of Lights. And for eight days, each day they light a different light on their menorah candlestick. I saw the menorah in Israel when uh, Israel declared themselves to be a state. Uh, when they did that, there was a uh, you know, great celebration among the people in 1948, wasn't it? When they did that, uh, no, Yes. And then later on, I think in 1967, after that war, they brought their menorah stick, their menorah candle into what is the old city, the Jewish sector of uh, right around Jerusalem. And they brought this large, it's all fashioned out of gold, one candlestick. They brought this in through the town, through the, through the winding lanes of the city. And they brought that and they put it up in a square to be displayed prominently. And it's surrounded by glass. And I saw it and got a picture uh, in front of it. And this thing, when they did that, they had rioting by the Muslims from the Muslim quarter of the city. And there was a big, big upheaval over that whole thing. What they were saying is that we're bringing our menorah, our, our light back into our city and it's gonna go up there on the Temple Mount and it will be in our temple again, which will be rebuilt. And they're basically declaring this, that we will continue on. And they celebrate Hanukkah. And every year when they celebrate that, they are looking forward to the day when they can have their temple again in Jerusalem and it will come to pass. You realize that this country hates Israel. Uh, and, And the people who should be speaking up and denouncing it are not in leadership? Why are they not denouncing this? Why aren't more politicians, more leaders of institutions of learning? Why aren't they standing up and denouncing the anti-Semitism in our country? I know that our, our, uh, our police forces and the FBI and the CIA and Homeland Security, I know that they're tracking what Hamas is planning to do and wanting to do in our country. And I know they're doing everything that they can to try to stop them from hurting Jewish people. But why aren't more people speaking out? And why aren't more preachers speaking out against the, the, the Jewish hatred in our country? I'll tell you why, because they hate the God of this book. And those people are God's people. They're not saved, but they're God's people. And they're, they're still trying to divide up their land. The UN is getting together and they're meeting on the northern coast of the Mediterranean and, and having their summits and their talks and talking about how they can continue to divide up that land and saying that it really belonged to the Palestinians and that the Jews are just occupying it. And I've got news for you, long before anybody ever used the word Palestine to call any group of people by that name, long before that, the Jews were given that land by God Almighty. And it's not just the Jews land, God said, it's my land. Long before uh, the Quran was ever written down, long before that, that that was about 600 AD, long before that, the Jews had that land and it's their land and God will preserve them in it because they're his people, they have a very special job. You know, there are other books that are not biblical books every once in a while, you hear about them. Uh, You hear about like the Shepherd of Hermas or the the, uh, Gospel of Barnabas, or you hear about 1st and 2nd Maccabees. You hear about lost books of the Bible. Um, And there's about, there's 66 books in here, and there's about 150, right around there, of non-biblical books that some people consider to be sacred. And uh, among those, you have books that are called uh, first and Second Maccabees, and the important things about those books is those were written right around 400 uh, BC. Starting in that period of time, and over a course of uh, time, those books were collected. Uh, these these extra books, and the First and Second Maccabees records what happened with Judas Maccabees and that revolt, and so on. And we know that they're accurate because we have Josephus, a historian of the first century who gave witness to the accuracy of those things. But those books, they're called the apocryphal books. There's a certain number of those books of the 150, there's a small number that are called apocryphal books. Apocrypha means hidden, and they were contained in the King James Bible when it was first printed. But the King James translators were smart enough to know that they're not scripture, they're not inspired, but they are useful. They are helpful. They are, in the case of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, they're helpful for history. And some of the other books, they would be uh, containing stories that the Jews uh, would teach about Old Testament characters and, and about some of the doctrines. They, they quoted the Bible verses in them. But the King James translators put them in between the Testaments, between Malachi and Matthew, because they knew that they weren't Scripture. And you know how they knew that they weren't Scripture because the Jews rejected them. This is a Jewish book. The Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, written by Jewish writers. You have the Jews to thank that you have this book and you have the Jews to thank that you have a savior. And um, they put them in between there for the usefulness of them, but the Jews said they're not inspired. They're not scripture. And you know what you have today? You have say the corrupt uh, new international version of the Bible. And they they print that thing and they print it from what they say are the oldest and best manuscripts. We've learned about that on Wednesday night. If you've been here for that, you've learned about it. The uh, Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus. One comes from Mount Sinai, the foot of traditional Mount Sinai from a Roman Catholic monastery, from a trash can in there. They found an old manuscript of the Bible of the New Testament in Greek. And uh, in another place in the library of the Vatican, they found a copy, a full copy of the, the Greek New Testament. And within those Greek New Testaments, you have some of those apocryphal writings inserted into the New Testament. The Catholic Church did that. When you get a Catholic Church Bible, if you go buy one from one of their bookstores, it's bigger than your Bible. And they'll brag about it, how it's bigger than your Bible. Our Bible's bigger than your Bible, na 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 boo boo. And they have books in there that are apocryphal, and they are not scripture. They were never accepted by the Jews as scripture but they have them inserted into scripture to make you think that it is the word of God. They have been corrupting the word of God for a long time. Now here's the rub. Why don't those NIV translators, if they really are saying that these are the oldest and best manuscripts, why don't they print the apocryphal parts? Because they're in there. Why do they, when they get to them, why do they just skip over them and go to the verses that we already know? Why do they do that? I'll tell you why, because they're professional liars because they're hucksters, because they just want to get your money. And they know if they print a Bible with the Apocrypha in it, insert it into the actual scripture, not between the Testaments, showing that it's not really scripture, but it's useful. But insert it into the actual places, old and new. Why don't they print it that way? Because that's the way it is in the so-called oldest and best manuscripts. It's because they know if they do that, you won't buy it. They know that a man like me would stand up and say, don't buy that, that's a Catholic Bible. It's filled with errors. And so you have to do your homework to find out it's still a Catholic Bible. It just doesn't have the apocryphal writings in it. And it's still filled with errors. I teach about this on Wednesday night. I tell you now because I want you to get the information. There's about 60,000 less words in the NIV. They take out 60,000 words that you have in your King James. So you get an NIV, you're missing something. 16 whole verses, many times the blood of Christ is taken out, many times. In one place, if if you study the story of Christmas from an NIV, it says that Joseph is Jesus' father. Joseph ain't Jesus' father. In in this Bible, it'll say, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Joseph, because Joseph isn't his father. And many other, many other serious corruptions in these newer versions of the Bible And it all comes from that period of time, the 400 silent years. The Jews were writing, but it wasn't inspired scripture. And so we have the history of what went on with the Maccabees. You say, now tell me, why is that so important? Did you just say that so that you could be on your soapbox and talk about new Bible versions? I know you feel sorry for me. You think I have a soapbox. No, I don't. There could be nothing more important for me to do than to say that you need to get God's book, get the right one and read and study it, raise your family on the right book. And to protect you from corruption and greedy, money hungry publishing companies, every one of them, every one of the publishing companies has their own Bible, why? Because they have copyrights on them and they get the money from the copyrights. So they sell their own Bible. It's the most popular book in the world. Anyways, during this time, you know what the Jews put down? They put down that information and then coming up into this period of time after Jesus was born, the Jews keep collecting writings and they they write something and they put it all together called the Talmud. For years and years and years, it was just kept up here by memory and then they wrote it down at about 200 AD. In the Talmud, there are commentaries about the Old Testament interpretations of the law. This is how we know what... uh, Rabbis believed about marriage. We know that from the Talmud. When Jesus talks about marriage, and, and you say that a man can divorce his wife for any reason, but, but I say unto you, and from the beginning it was not so. Jesus was talking about what the rabbis were teaching. All that stuff was written down in the Talmud, that body of Jewish literature. And you say, What's so interesting about that? In the Talmud, Jesus is spoken about over and over and over again. And it's codified, meaning that it's in code. But the Jews gave him a name and they talk about him over and over again. This man who came in and caused so much trouble for them. They hate him and they talk about him in the Talmud. You know what's so important about that? That tells us that he really existed that if people say Jesus was never a historical figure, you're making all of this up. No, those people don't know what they're talking about. They haven't done their homework. We have Jewish writings that talk about him all over the place and know that he existed and they hated him. You know what's so sad? During Hanukkah, the Jews have their menorah. They have their eight days of lighting candles their feast of lights. And it's to celebrate that the light came back on in the temple for eight days. But when Jesus showed up, the light of the world, that happened roughly in the middle of this period. When Jesus showed up, they rejected the light of the world. Isn't that sad? After God had protected them, after God had given them a miracle in the temple. When Jesus showed up, they rejected him. And in 70 AD, God put out the light again. Titus came in, destroyed the second temple and put out that light. And again, it was, it was defiled. You know, um, that's, that's sad. And, and God is still saving Jewish people today individually. Some most reject but some get saved. And, and, and we love the Jewish people. If, if they would have, if uh, Antiochus Epiphanes would have been successful in extinguishing the Jews, we would never have had Jesus our Savior. God preserved Israel through those 400 years so that he could fulfill the promise to us that he would send a Savior to save us. How sad would it be if you rejected the light of that truth for some religious uh, set of rules that you think in keeping these set of rules I'll be saved or you reject the only way of salvation through Jesus for your own works or baptism and church membership or something like that, Uh, how sad would it be after God has done all of this not to truly get saved by just throwing yourself completely on Jesus Christ, 100% trusting in his sacrifice on that cross. Hanukkah is a good thing. Today, Hanukkah is a good thing. It means that God protected his people from extinction because of the important job that they had to do. And it means that God brought forth the Messiah. And and it's just sad that more Jews don't realize that their important place in all of this and bringing forth the savior. Um, you know uh, as we think about that today and as we think about that this Christmas I hoped from this series that this would make Christmas time more meaningful because at Christmas we celebrate the birthday of Jesus it's happy birthday Jesus but hopefully our understanding is broader now and we can appreciate him more. And the whole purpose of this series and of this sermon today is first of all, hopefully that people would get saved. But second of all, it's so that Jesus would be exalted, that we would magnify him. When we think about this great drama of redemption, this great plan that God had and how he fulfilled it. Even in history, even with the Jewish people that were uh, rebellious, rebellious people, Uh, Even with Jewish people that God knew when I send my son, when he shows up, they will reject him and he will be crucified. God knew all of that and he still came. And God knew that when he saved you and me. He knew what he was getting into. He knew that he would save somebody who would be stubborn, who would be... uh, hot and cold and lukewarm a lot of the time and, and uh, would have problems and come with all kinds of baggage and, and uh, sometimes it would be ashamed of Jesus, and ashamed to speak up and give a witness and, and then at other times would be made strong and would be made bold and would grow and mature as a Christian and become a fruitful Christian eventually and and die in peace and hope knowing that, that they belong to Christ and he belongs to them and that ultimately out of that life a long process of trying to make a person grow and mature in Christ and become more like his son that ultimately he would claim them to himself and bring them to himself in his heavenly home and, 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 and hold us there as the treasure that we really are. We're, we're worth so much that God would send his son to die for us. We're worth more than all the world. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It's a bad trade. We're worth more than the world because we're worth that much to God. As we celebrate Christmas this year, let's think about that and let's exalt Christ for it and exalt him for what he's doing even now. And don't just allow him to be the savior from sin and the punishment in hell, allow him to be the savior from sin in this life, the power of sin over us. Uh, Progressively in our life, sin should have less power, less uh, control over us. And more and more, we're under the control of the spirit and under the sway of the spirit as we go on through our lives. Jesus wants to save us from a powerful uh, thing that's within us. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this message today. We thank you and we exalt Christ. We magnify him as a wonderful savior. He stands alone. There's never been anyone like him. There's no other book like this book, and you've given it to us. God, I pray today that you would save more Jews through the soul-saving message of the gospel I pray that more Muslim people would be saved and would be on fire and be vibrant witnesses in our own country, Lord, and uh, would be church planters and and, uh, that they would awaken the sleepy American church and be an example to us. Father, I pray that Jesus would get the glory for everything. We thank you for salvation full and free. We pray that you would help us to walk in the spirit, not to fulfill the lust of the flesh. God, I pray for this church, that this church would be a joy-filled church. Pray that each one of us would experience what is ours as children of God, that, that joy, that deep-seated joy of heart, and God, that we would know the peace of God that passes all understanding, that would keep our hearts and our minds this Christmas season. Father, if there's one in here today who's not saved, I assume that everyone is, but if there's someone here today who's still uncertain, and, and, and they, they have their doubts, I pray that today would be the day that that gets settled. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, during this time of invitation, I'm gonna have Brother Randy come and, and close us with an invitation hymn. And if you need to pray,